Sort of like their way of saying Hosanna, right? Yeah. Everybody get your palm branches out at all of our campuses. Waukee, Johnston Grimes, Ames, I see you. Well, I don't, but you see me. But anyway, we're connected that way. Get them up here in West Des Moines, too. On the count of three, say Hosanna. One, two, three. Hosanna. Shout it out. Hosanna. 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 Woo. You guys are ready to go today. I'm bad. I don't even have to preach, but I will. That video that you just saw is from a TV show that's called 100,000 Cameras. The concept on it is pretty interesting. The idea is for racing fans, at the biggest race of the year, the Daytona 500 for NASCAR fans, it's the biggest race anyway, called the Great American Race, that instead of having a professional camera crew go out, go out and film for this show, they'd take the videos that people like us shoot on our phones. Uh, people who are at the race, people who are watching on TV at home, people with their friends or family, people who are uh, on the pit crew and are kind of giving us behind the scenes views, people who are racing the cars and have a camera inside their car and they're sharing it with NASCAR Productions, people who are at uh, establishments all over the world who are watching this race together because it's that big of a deal for race fans and, and they're watching it in a place where they eat like chicken wings and drink root beer, and they hang out and they watch this sporting event together. And the idea was you'd bring all these videos, tens of thousands of videos, bring them together and create a half hour show so that you could get a glimpse of what it's like to experience the Daytona 500. The reason I know so much about this is because my son is one of the three people who put this show together and their boss is the one who's holding the Emmy they won last year for it. He played quarterback for Virginia and, and they were there. The idea is that they would give us a glimpse. What is it like to be there at this race? What's it like to experience it, even if you aren't a racing fan? I want to ask you that question in the context of something far more important today. When it comes to this Jesus run that we've been on, this race with Jesus, if you will, upon which we are now entering the final lap. This is the white flag lap. If you know racing, the white flag waves when it's the last lap. Uh, the bell lap, if you're a track and field person or a swim meet person. It's the last lap. This is the lap upon which the victors will be decided. And we'll be able to see who won and who lost and how it all sorts out. That's Holy Week, folks. This is the week of Jesus' passion. This is the, the week that, that it stands as the highlight, not just of the four Gospels. When you read the Gospels, you realize, oh my goodness, the, the Holy Week story is at least a third of each of the four Gospels, and that's for good reason. Not only is it the culmination of the four Gospels, each of them, it's the culmination of the entire Bible from the beginning of creation which begs for a Savior as we fall away from God in rebellion to the prophets who point to Jesus, to the story of the Exodus which is a prelude to the freedom that Jesus Christ gives us in the new life from the bondage of sin to freedom and new life. Apart from that sin, our sins are washed away. Everything in the Old Testament, if we look at it and read it for the way it's written, points us, even though it was written some of it 1,300 years before Jesus even showed up, points us to this week, to this last lap of the Jesus run. So my question for you today is, what will you see on this final lap with Jesus? Will you be, um, I don't know, too good for it? You don't need it? You can keep your spiritual arms distance away from it? You're not going to get into it. 
I love this church. I love everything about this church. It's so fun to watch at the beginning of the Palm Sunday songs. You're waving your palm branches and shouting Hosanna. 99% of you are into it. Totally into it. And then as you look around the room, there are the stoic Lutherans among us who are like, I will not. I will not participate. It is arms crossed, by the way. I will not participate in this. And don't worry. This is not guilt or shame. I've got your back. You don't have to. I get you. I understand where you're coming from. It's all good. You're stoic. You can't help it. It's just how you're wired up. And nobody here gets to pop, pop, you know, poke you on the shoulder and say, hey, you got to get your palm up. You report them to me, all right, if somebody tells you that. That's okay. But I do want to tell you, you stick out like a sore thumb uh, when, when you don't do it. Because everybody else around you is at the party. You know what I'm saying? And you're just like, mm, no. Actually, it looks more like this. I'm not participating. I want you to participate, whether it's as a stoic Lutheran or a full-blown dancing in the aisles Pentecostal or anything in between, and hope has all of the above. Isn't that a great thing about hope? That no matter who you are, no matter who you are, that you will take this last lap with Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you as we begin Holy Week today, some of the things that I want you to look for, the things that you'll be blessed to see. Remember, as I've said throughout this series, this Jesus Run series during Lent, Jesus said, blessed are your eyes to see what you get to see and your ears to hear what you get to hear. If you haven't already, in the stories of Jesus feeding 5,000 with five filet of fish sandwiches or walking on water or healing the sick or doing all these things that we've seen Jesus do on this Lenten series, if that hasn't been enough for you, this will get your attention. Because the story we embark on starting today and that we conclude next Sunday on Easter Sunday is the story of the salvation of our souls. Which sounds like churchy kind of language. So let me make sure I bring that down for you and you understand what it means. It has everything to do with how you're going to exist after this relatively very short blink of an eye life is over on this earth. That even if you live to be 110, even if you live like Sister Jean into her 90s cheering for Loyola of Chicago, and everybody notices and says, wow, that's kind of a cool story, and I'm from Chicago, I'm really pumped about that. But even if you live to be 125, it's still a relative blink of an eye compared to your eternity. This is about God, the creator of the universe, offering the salvation of our souls forever. There's nothing that could get bigger than this. This isn't just the highlight of the Gospels in the New Testament and the whole Bible. This is the highlight story of life for any of us. Whether we've ever cracked open a Bible or not, whether we can parse the Greek verbs of the New Testament and all of their tenses and moods and connect it to the Hebrew prophecies of the Old Testament, or we're just being introduced to the Word of God for the first time. The great thing about God's love and His grace in this last lap with Jesus Christ is, please hear this, you do not have to have your spiritual act together to run with Jesus on this last lap. You do not have to have it all figured out. And any church or any Christian who tells you otherwise is now standing outside of the witness of Scripture and God's Word. Jesus invites everybody on this last lap with him. 
to get into the race car with him, if you will, and, and ride along and see what you see and hear what you hear and experience what you experience, the salvation of your soul that brings you to a new life right now, an everlasting life, the assurance, not just the wish, but the assurance of our hope in the resurrection of the Lord that leads us into a kingdom where there is no death and there is no suffering and there is no sorrow. This is not preacher boy, Pastor Mike's opinion. This is God's word. The promise and the hope and the assurance of God's word proclaim for us this Holy Week. So here we come to the white flag lap. In racing, when they wave the white flag, that means there's one to go. This is it. It's the white flag. It's the bell, it's the bell lap. And Jesus says, come on, run with me. Run with me. I want you to see and hear these things. Toward the end of this show that my son and that team at NASCAR Productions put together, they emphasized the last lap of this Daytona 500 from 2016. And it was a crazy one. But I want you to, what I want you to watch as you, as you take a look at this very short clip is not so much the racing part of it. I get it that like 10% of you are racing fans and the other 90% of you are smart. I understand that, I know. <laughs> I get it and you can feel superior if you're in the 90% to the 10% of us who are fine. It's just about left turns. Yeah, right, whatever, okay. So we got that out of the way, right? You try driving one of these cars for 500 miles in Daytona when it's 92 degrees outside. At 210 miles an hour, bumper to bumper with other drivers around you, lap after lap after lap for 200 laps. Anyway, sorry, that wasn't in the sermon. But maybe it went from 10% to 11% by saying that, I don't know. But as you watch this clip, whether you're in the 90% of people who aren't race fans or the 10% who aren't, Certainly you can appreciate people who are fans of anything, can't you? You're a fan of something. You're into something. Fan is short for a fanatic, somebody who's, who's all into something, a passion in your life. Well, there are some people who, among other things, are passionate for certain race car drivers, and that's their team, and that's the one they cheer for, and they wear the T-shirts, and they put the bumper stickers on their trucks, and, and they ride around, and they go to all these races, and it's a big part of their hobbies and their passions and, and their free time. This TV show gives us a glimpse of what it's like for some of them. As you watch, you'll notice that at a certain point, they're no longer calmly speaking about things with the English language. They're not saying, go, Denny Hamlin, my favorite driver, I hope you win. Gee, I hope you beat the other driver by a little bit at the end of the race. Gosh, I hope you pass that car that's in front of you. They're not saying that anymore. They might have said that around lap 107. But on lap 199 in a 200-lap race, they're not sitting on the couch anymore. They can't. They're up on their feet, and they're screaming, and they're cheering all over, not just at the racetrack for the 175,000 people who are there, but for the millions of people all over the world who are sharing this experience at the same time. As you watch this, I don't want you to think about racing. I want you to think about how significant this last lap of Jesus Christ is and how you respond to it. And whether you're just going to sit back passively and say, oh, well, how about that? Or you will rise to your feet and you will follow him 
all the way through the city gates of Jerusalem to the, to the upper room, to the, to the cross at Calvary and through the empty tomb. And you will not only hear the story of the salvation of your soul, you'll experience it. It will give you a confidence, which literally means to walk with faith. Con is with, fidence, fide means faith in the original Greek of the New Testament. It will give you a confidence about your life that will put your joys and your sorrows and everything in between in this fallen, messed up world that's temporary in perspective. And you will see it for what it is. It's as important as it is important, and it is important. But in light of eternity and the salvation of our souls, oh, we get up on our feet and we say, you alone, Jesus Christ, are worthy of our praise. We will follow you on this last lap. You are the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. You are the one who boldly proclaims, not only will I show you the way, but I'm the resurrection and the life. I'll look square into the face of the death that awaits you at some point in your future, and I will assure you, it will be conquered. I will win a victory over it. Last lap, Jesus says, who's coming with me? They raced for 500 miles and one car beat another by two feet. After 500 miles over and over again around that track, the guy wins by two feet and his fans go wild. And the fans of the other car, you saw the one at the end, no! This is unjust, this is wrong. The reaction, the emotion, the response. The Bible says over and over again, there are places in life that we're gonna be overwhelmed and words are gonna fail us. We aren't gonna be articulate what we're feeling anymore. The English language falls apart. Have you ever been in one of those situations lately? Something's happening that's so big, it's like, I got no words. I, I just have emotion. I just have heart, I just, I just have feeling, either incredible joy, incredible sorrow, something in between, inspiration. I've got no, I'm speechless. When's the last time you became speechless in the face of an overwhelming moment? Jeremiah, the, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament tells the story of the prophet Jeremiah. God speaks to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, go to my people, the Israelites, and tell them they're about to be run over by the Babylonians. This is right before the exile. And Jeremiah is so overwhelmed by the bad news of this message, he can't speak. And so he needs to faithfully bring this word of God to, to warn God's people. So he brings it to the king of Judah, but he has no words. Instead, he just shows it. He takes a wooden yoke and puts it around his neck. And then he goes to other kings in the surrounding nations and shows them the same thing. Sometimes it's not the words, but it's, it's what we see. It, it, it's what we're taking in. It's, it's what we're experiencing. And it, it's not just an analysis of something or a sermon about something or a, a, a Bible study kind of uh, a walkthrough of something or doing all the hermeneutical work in the Bible on something. That's all important and serves a purpose. But at what point are you going to let your heart open up so the one who comes into this world to save your soul. At what point is it going to go from just something you think about to your experience of God? To something you allow to happen? Because God's not going to force his way into your heart. He's waiting for you to open the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I'm waiting for you to open that up. And if you do, I'll come in. And I'll change your life. I'll transform you. I'll put you on a whole different path. I'll give you this confidence. I'll give you this faith. I'll give you this hope. 
I'll give you this joy. I'll give you a peace which passes all understanding. I won't take away your sorrow. I won't take away your stress. You live in a fallen world. You're going to get that, Jesus says. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Behold, I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. When are you going to open it up, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20? When are you going to let me in? Jeremiah puts this yoke around his neck. And if you don't know what a yoke is, think of a yoke around oxen that, are, that, that a farmer is using to plow a field. It's, they become beasts of burden because they're carrying the burden of this yoke, the weight of this yoke. So Jeremiah puts a yoke around his neck and goes to a king and says, this is what's coming. It doesn't say anything. Shows them this is what's coming. It's more powerful than words. Just like videos can be. Just like pictures can be. In the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, another example of this is the Apostle Paul writes, he says, sometimes when you're praying, the emotion of the moment is so overwhelming, or the inspiration of the moment is so overwhelming that you no longer have words. Because it's just too deep. And it's at that moment, did you know this good news? That the Bible promises that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you? The Spirit of God goes into your heart and takes your heart and now you don't have to articulate the words in your prayer. You don't have to think about them. You just pray your heart. You just lift up what you're feeling, what you're experiencing to God and say, God, I trust that you're getting this. I trust that you know what I'm feeling and I'm lifting up before you. I trust that you're hearing this prayer. And the Bible in Romans 8 promises that God is hearing it, that the Holy Spirit intercedes and brings these prayers before the throne of the Almighty. Putting words on your emotion that overwhelms you, for you, on your behalf. Sometimes words fail us. And so we just start looking at pictures or, or videos or moments that remind us. And we get these symbols or these signs, these marks of our faith. And the Holy Week, last lap with Jesus, is full of these. I want to give you a quick overview. But before we, before we dive into the rest of Holy Week, I encourage you, I implore you, open your Bibles this week. Read the gospel stories of the Passion. They're not hard to find. Read them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read them to your family. Read them to your friends. Read them to your small group, your Bible study group, your life group, your women's group, your men's group. Soak them up by yourself. Let them be a part of who you are. Experience these words for you. Take this last lap with Jesus. Here's what you're going to see starting today on Palm Sunday. First, you're going to see the Mount of Olives after Jesus goes out and sends his disciples out to prepare for this day. He says, go get a donkey and a donkey's colt. More on that in a moment. And then they come over this hillside. Here's a picture of the Mount of Olives. This is Jerusalem up on the other hillside in between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. These two hilltops is a valley called the Kidron Valley. On this picture, you don't really get a sense for the topography, for, for the highs and the lows here. As somebody who's been blessed to be here five years ago and see this site, it's pretty significant and pretty dramatic. This is a rather steep kind of decline down the Mount of Olives into the valley, and then a rather rapid incline back up to the holy city of Jerusalem. This is what you'll see, and today, if you go there, this is a picture from just a few years ago, you'll see 150,000 plus graves on the Mount of Olives because in the face of Jesus marching to his own death, he was bringing life, and it becomes our symbol of hope. Turn a little deeper into this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, and you'll see the city gate in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, we need to pause for a moment because this ties straight into Holy Week and to Palm Sunday. Jerusalem is the city that was established by David. Everyone say David. David was this heroic king for Israel. Still, if you ask people who live in Israel to this day, who's the greatest leader in your history? They'll say David. King David, a thousand years before Jesus even showed up, is this little shepherd boy who took on the giant Goliath. Not too long after that, he rises to prominence, becomes anointed as the king of Israel. Israel is gaining strength, and they're trying to decide where to put their new capital city. Rather than offend somebody by putting it in this town instead of that town, God gives this word to David, put it in a new town, this new city I'm going to give to you, Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't even called Jerusalem at the time. Not until David took it. But it was, it was uh, occupied and governed by the Jebusites. Now this is the part of Scripture a lot of times I think that, that makes people uncomfortable. It did me before I understood and dove a little deeper into the history. The Jebusites were not kind people. Think Darth Vader and the evil empire, for those of you who are Star Wars fans. So if you get a, a little uncomfortable, say, why is God choosing sides? Why is God for Israel? Is it because they're perfect? No, far from it. God says clearly and blatantly over and over again through the Old Testament, I didn't pick you because you're perfect. I picked you because I picked you. It's a grace thing. It's a mercy thing. But relative to the Jebusites, the Israelites were little angels. They were saints. The Jebusites were sacrificing babies, taking their remains, mixing them in together with the mortar that they build walls with. I mean, dark, evil stuff. And God had had it with them. He says, they're done. I'm not taking that anymore. God will not be mocked. We might think we can get away with things like that year after year and generation after generation, but at a certain point, God says, that's it. You're out. I'm taking you out, Jebusites, and I'm bringing Israel in. So David shows up with his army in this city that would become Jerusalem, down at the bottom of the hill, and he's looking up, and a message comes to him from the Jebusite general. And it's trash talk. Do you ever, any of you play, like when I was playing basketball in college, trash talk was half the fun. You know, you try to get in the head of the, uh, of the opponent and just go, oh, that guy with the ball right there, he's going to kill you. He's, he's my teammate. He's so good. His three-pointers are like layups. So you, you just trash talk people. It's part of the fun. The Jebusite general's trash talking David. Who do you think you are, little shepherd boy? You and your minuscule little tiny army, you're going to take this city that's up on a hill and is fortified with a big brick wall and only has a few city gate entrances into it, which are heavily guarded by our best men? you got to be kidding me. To make matters worse, he got specific. He said, we're so not threatened by you and your tiny little army that I'm going to remove my good guards from the city gate and I'm going to replace them with the blind and the lame. Those are his words. So David got this word from the Lord. Find the well. Don't go in through the city gates. Go into what will become Jerusalem by finding the well and working your army in a surprise attack up the tunnel and come out and take over the city. That's what they did, and Jerusalem was won. And the capital of Israel was established. That's important because on Palm Sunday, 
when people grab their palm branches as Jesus is walking into the city gate of Jerusalem, what are they saying? Do you remember the Bible reading you heard just a few minutes ago? Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, praise God, God save us. Blessed is the one who comes as the, what did they say? The son of David. Jesus, this is who we say you are. You're the new David. You're the new king who's going to take over the Roman Empire and the temple along the way. You're the one who's going to take over those who oppress us, just like they did to David and the Israelites back once upon a time. You're the new David. You're the son of David, and we're riding with you. James and John, the disciples of Jesus, the sons of thunder, their mother came up to Jesus just a few weeks before this and said, "Uh, hey, Jesus, when you rise to your throne in Jerusalem like David did, grant that my two sons, James and John, can sit at your right and left hand in places of prominence. Appoint them to your cabinet. Let them be your vice presidents. And Jesus' response is very interesting. Not too many words. Jesus is just about done with words. He'll stand before Pilate and silence the governor representing the Roman Empire who puts him on trial. He doesn't have a whole lot of words, but his response to the mother of his two disciples is gentle and kind, but it's very clear. And it's even clearer by the way he's going to live and the pictures and the videos that we could take if we were there. What we'll see is Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, with all due respect to my ancestor David, and the kind of king he was. I'm here for way more. I am not just another king like David, but I am the king of all kings. And I am the Lord of all lords. And I am not here to take over a government or an empire or a religion or a temple. I'm here for more. I'm here for the salvation of this world. I'm here to make right everything that's gone wrong. I'm here to usher in the kingdom of God, the one we pray for still to this day in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Bring it, Jesus. You are more than a great king or a revolutionary leader or a rabbi or a teacher or somebody who's going to give us some tips to live a little bit of a better life. You're God in the flesh. You're the one, you give God praise for that if you want, that's fine. <laughs> People in Ames and Johnson are like, what? Okay, we'll clap, yeah, there you go. That's good, because your heart is open to it. Take this last lap with Jesus, and he'll lead you to more through the city gates. Oh, and as he's getting to the city gates, he's riding on a donkey in a donkey's colt. Say, everybody look at the picture and just silently to yourself say, aw, isn't that cute? I said silently. Yeah, well, anyway. He's humble. The same chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the Palm Sunday chapter says, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And we can read that, and if we don't know, we'll just say, oh, that's just kind of random. And it says he's humble, and he's on a colt. And I get that, I guess, because other warrior kings come in riding on a war horse, and they're hailed as the great warrior champion. And Jesus is humble. He's a humble king of all kings. And he's here for more. And he's riding in on a donkey, and a donkey's colt, a position that's lower, a position of humility. And that's true. Even though he's riding in lower, he's coming with so much more power than any king has ever brought into any kingdom, than any army could ever exact on any other rival army. 
He's riding in on a donkey in a donkey's colt, but it gets even better when you realize this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that had been sitting there for centuries. So if you knew your scriptures and you came out to Jerusalem that day and you joined the spontaneous parade and here comes the disciples and Jesus isn't right in the middle of it and there are hundreds if not thousands of people who are waving palm branches and, and preparing a way for Jesus to come into the holy city down the hill from the Mount of Olives. These are the pictures you see. This is the story not just of Holy Week and Christianity but the story of us. As you see this, if you know your scriptures and you see Jesus riding on a donkey and there's a donkey's colt right next to him, you're going to have your breath taken away. Because you know this is a prophecy that was made centuries before and you've been waiting for the fulfillment of it, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That when the one who comes into the holy city of Jerusalem comes riding on a donkey and a donkey's colt, he won't just be somebody who's coming as an ordinary king. He'll be coming as the Messiah, the anointed one of God. A few verses later in the same chapter, we read about people putting down their cloaks, not just palm branches and riding on donkeys, but they're putting down their cloaks. Here's an artist's depiction of Sir Walter Raleigh putting down his cloak as a gentleman in a chivalrous act for Queen Elizabeth I some five centuries ago, give or take. What's really fascinating about this legendary story is Sir Walter Raleigh and Queen Elizabeth I were not in sync politically. They did not agree with one another. But Sir Walter Raleigh respected the crown, respected the office, something I think that we could all be reminded of in this world today. And not just here, but in nations around the world. That when we lose respect for the office, you can disagree with the person in it. You can disagree with the queen, the king, the president, the prime minister, whoever it might be, the person in charge. But when we lose respect for the office, when we lose respect for the crown, we lose way more than just a political fight. Sir Walter Raleigh, who stood completely opposed to Queen Elizabeth on almost every political issue and was a thorn in her side, when he was with her one day, legend has it, it was a rainy, muddy day, and he took his expensive cloak off, laid it down on the muddy ground so that the bottoms of the royal's shoes would not touch the mud because he had so much respect for the crown, even though he vehemently disagreed with her. This has been the way in this human race, in this world with royalty, from before Jesus, during Jesus' time, after Jesus' time, and still to this day. That we respect the crown. We respect the office and what it brings. But what's really most important about this story is that it's another fulfillment of prophecy. That in the Old Testament it says, when the Messiah comes, people will lay down their cloaks before this one who's coming in, riding on the donkeys, singing their hosannas, shouting their praises, and it's all coming together. Things that Jesus couldn't control are all happening right before the eyes of the crowd. A few verses later in the same chapter of Matthew's Gospel, they cut down branches from the trees, palm trees and other trees, and they're spreading them out on the road, and the other Gospels say they're waving them around. And one more time, everyone, Hosanna! <laughs> they're shouting their Hosannas, which means praise God and God save us. Save us, God. Save us from, I don't know, how would you fill in the blank there these days? 
Save us from the people that I disagree with. Save me, save me from my coworkers, my classmates, the, the people who are doing bad things. Save us from bad government. Save us from corrupt people. Save us, save us from leadership that fails. Save, save us from neighbors who are very difficult to live next door to. Save, save us from, from bad community. Save us from illness. Save, save, save loved ones from dying. Save us, God. What, how would you fill in that sentence these days? How do you pray that prayer? God, save us from fill in the blank. As you do that, that's fine. And that's a big part of the Christian journey to pray for anything the Bible says and everything that's on your mind. It's not that your prayers aren't important no matter what they are. People who say, oh, I don't want to waste God's time with this one. Have you seen Sister Jean in Loyola? I mean, she's, she's, there's something going on there. I'm just saying there's no prayer that's too trivial for God. Lift it up. You say, well, I don't want to bother God. <laughs> God's not bothered. So, well, God's busy doing other things. You're putting human limitations on an infinite God who can be at all places at all times and can give you individualized attention 24-7. Talk to God about everything. But along the way, keep this in mind. What Jesus is doing, inviting us on this last lap, his Passion Week, this Holy Week, is so much more than just taking care of our requests. What he's doing is saying, come with me to a place where I'll take you deeper. This is like a tax accountant come before April 15th that you hire to say, just do my taxes. And what you mean by that is, save me from having to do it. April 15th is coming, just do my taxes. Please. Did I just ruin some of your days just by reminding you taxes is right around the corner, sorry. Just do my taxes. And if it's a good tax accountant, she or he is gonna look at you and say, show me your finances. Show me the way you're spending your money. Show me the way you're taking it in. Let me help you in ways that are deeper than you're asking. Let me show you how to find freedom. Let me show you something more than what you want. When we ask Jesus to heal our loved one, when we ask Jesus to give us a promotion, when we ask Jesus to let our team win, when we ask Jesus to, 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 to take care of the immorality in our neighborhood or something that's happening in our lives, Jesus looks at that and he says, let me give you more. Let me make sure you know that my presence in this world is about all those things and it is about them. But please don't forget this. I didn't just come to save them. I didn't just come to save their souls. I didn't just come to right those injustices that you see or fix the morality, the immorality in the people around you that you don't agree with. I came to fix you. I came to bring my light into the darkness of your soul. And lest any of us who are hearing my voice right now at any campus think we've graduated from needing a savior to come by his amazing grace and bring light into the darkness of our soul, A, we aren't reading scripture for what scripture says, and B, we aren't being honest with ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the Bible says, and the truth is not in us. And if your Christianity becomes all about God fix all of them, and make right everything else out there in the world, and it never becomes about God, get into me. 
What I need from you is to fix me. What I need from you is to transform me. What I need from you is to take my guilt and my shame and my sin and my death and the evil that I bring into the world or that goes into the world through me. What I need is for you to come into my heart and transform me and turn my life around. That's what people are saying when they're saying, God save us. Whether we know it or not, hear this again. You do not have to have it all figured out to run with Jesus. But if you do, he's the tax accountant who's gonna say, not only am I gonna do your 1040 for you, we're gonna talk about the way you manage your money. We're gonna talk about the whole thing. We're gonna talk about things that are deeper than just fixing these things in the world around us. I wanna fix you, Jesus says. I wanna fix you. So run with me this Holy Week. Take this last lap. The white flag is waving. This is it, it doesn't get any bigger than this. The bell lap is ringing. As we go just a little deeper into this story, we get to my favorite part and we'll wrap it up here. Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. He walks into the holy city of Jerusalem, down the hill of the Mount of Olives, through the city gate, on the donkey, with the palms and the cloaks and all these fulfillments of prophecies that are happening. So that anybody who's keeping score would say, whoa. Something bigger than we thought is going on here. This is not just another prophet or another king. This is the one. But then he marches straight into the temple and he flips the tables and he pushes away the chairs. And this is so cool. I've been saying he's more like Clint Eastwood than you know in a good Western all this series. He takes out a whip and he starts going, just like that or something like that. And he drives out the people who are in charge of the temple. Here's what you need to know about the temple. I believe to capture the experience of this moment in the story. The temple represented the presence of God. Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Do you know how important that Ark of the Covenant is? Have you read the Old Testament? It's a big deal. It represents the presence of God. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, this high part of the temple, in the center of the temple. In that holy of holy rooms, only the chief priests, only the one chief priest could walk into that room and only once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice, an offering to God on behalf of the sins of all of God's people. So holy that only one person was worthy to walk in there once a year on behalf of all God's people. Talk about reverence and majesty. Just outside of that room, there was another room where only the priests could get in. Just outside of that room was another room where only the Israelites could get in. Just outside of that room was another large hallway that wrapped around the whole temple where only the women could get in. Just outside of that part of the temple was another room that had boundaries around it like all the other rooms had boundaries where all the people could get in, all the Gentiles. But isn't that interesting? That the house of God would have all these boundaries, would have all these barriers that you had to qualify for in order to experience the fullness of God's power and his love. <laughs> Jesus showed up, walked into the temple, flipped all the tables over as if to say, the boundaries are gone. You're all priests. It's a priesthood of all believers, the Bible says. You're all welcome in God's kingdom. Everybody gets in. You don't 
have to have it all together. You just have to follow me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says, and the resurrection and the life. Come and follow me, and I'll save your soul and the souls of everybody else who takes this last lap with me and believes in me. Come to me, and I'll conquer your sin, and I'll conquer your death, and I'll conquer the darkness of evil in the world around you. Come to me, and I'll destroy all these barriers. Isn't it interesting that in the church today, Christians today, so often still play this barrier game. We send messages, either blatant or, or implicit, kind of, kind of very subtly sort of implied. Look, folks, you don't belong here at church with us, whatever church it might be. You don't, you don't belong here because you aren't moral enough. You aren't righteous enough. You don't see the world the way we do. You, you, you don't agree with us on all the same hot button social issues like we do. So you don't belong here. Ah, oh, shame on us for making Christianity about that. It's about so much more. Tear down the walls. Tell the world they're all invited. Jesus is coming and he invites us on this last lap and he's taken us to a finish line that is the kingdom of God. And it's for you and it's for your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. And especially it's for those among you who are the people who are furthest away from God. Jesus says, I'm here for the sick people, not the people who are well. Does his church represent that? Do we tell the world that good news? Tear down the walls. Jesus is flipping the tables over and people wrongly think that means you shouldn't have a bake sale at church. You shouldn't sell Bibles and Christian books and CDs and little pictures with Bible verses on them. And, and you definitely shouldn't sell smoothies <laughs> and designer coffee. And that's corrupt. And haven't you read the Bible where Jesus flipped tables over when people were doing that stuff? Have you read the Bible? Do you know what this story is? Do you think we'd have the guts as pastors to have a bookstore if we knew the Bible said we shouldn't do it? We're not that dumb. We do it because Jesus flipped the tables because he was opening up the temple for everybody. And he was driving out the money changers not because they were selling things for an honest price, because they were selling things for a dishonest price. It's like being in an airport and buying a Big Mac for $16. <laughs> Don't you just feel dirty when you do that? Don't you just feel like you've been had? That's what was going on. If we ever start selling smoothies for $16, flip the tables. But Jesus isn't saying there's anything wrong with having a bake sale or a bookstore in your church. He's saying there's something wrong with putting up boundaries and cheating people out of money for your own purposes. All of the proceeds in our bookstores at all of our campuses go completely to ministries outside of hope, to missions. Because we don't want to mess with this God who's here to save our souls. We don't want to play games with any of this. Later this week, you'll go to the upper room on Maundy Thursday, and you'll find some water where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and he gets down on his knees. The king of all kings is down on his knees. And Peter says, Lord, I'm not worthy to let you wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you won't get any of my blessing. And so Peter says, this is just a paraphrase, then give me a whole shower. Immerse me in the tub. I want the whole thing. We'll go to the upper room where Jesus will gather his best friends around a Passover table and he'll break the bread and the wine and he'll establish a New Testament, a new covenant. 
And then after that, he'll go outside and he'll be betrayed by one of his closest friends, denied by Peter, just like Jesus said he would. There'll be these things that you'll see and hear. That if we let them be what they really are, overwhelm us. And words start to fail us and we just get pictures of a garden and a kiss of betrayal and swords and an arrest. And then on Good Friday, we follow Jesus to the cross, which is the center of it all. He's put on trial, he's whipped to the point of death. A rooster crows that morning of his crucifixion, just like Jesus said it would. And Peter realizes Jesus said this would happen, that I'd deny him three times and then the rooster would crow. And when the rooster crows, Peter's soul is crushed and he has no words. He's overwhelmed. But he's still invited to the finish line with Jesus, to the cross where Jesus takes the nails and he's mocked with vinegar on the cross. Can you imagine getting vinegar to drink while you're dying, uh, suffocating to death because your lungs are exploding? The guards are mocking him by gambling for his garments, playing dice games. And we look at that and we say, Jesus, why'd you do it? Why didn't you stop it? Why'd you even go through the city gate if you knew all this was going to happen? Why'd you go into the temple? Any good PR person, and there's lots of them in this church, would tell you, you were doing great until you got into the city. And then you went into the temple, and when you started flipping tables, look, Jesus, here's a seven-point strategic plan for next time you do that, all right? It'll go a lot better. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't here to win the hearts of the world for the sake of his own gain. He was here to give up his life for the sake of the world's gain. So he went to the cross and he died there. Why? Why didn't he stop it? Why didn't he put Pontius Pilate in his place? Why didn't he put the, the priests and the scribes in their place? Why didn't he take over the temple? What would have been wrong with that? Why didn't he take over the Roman Empire? Why didn't God find another way? Because someone had to defeat our death by dying. Why did Jesus do it? you don't hear anything else I've said today, go home with this and chew on it. He did it for you. Not just the people sitting next to you, you know, the sinners. He did it for you. Because he loves you. And he can't stand the thought of spending eternity apart from you. So he's knocking on the door of your heart on this Palm Sunday, the beginning of this Holy Week, this Passion Week, he's saying, please follow me. Run with me on this final lap. Let me show you what I want you to see. And tell you what I want you to hear. Let me give you a glimpse from the perspective of thousands of different angles of what it means to follow Jesus through the city gates, to the upper room, to the cross at Calvary. And then... Well, we're out of time, but that's perfect because this is where we'll pick it up next weekend. But stop by on Thursday and Friday first at whatever campus you're at because next weekend, as we come to the last turn and we find ourselves feeling like we're in last place in the 800 meters in the track meet, stand by for the kick. It's not over. 
to be continued. Happy Holy Week, everybody. Let's stand up at whatever campus you're at, and we'll sing this song.